The first of my posts to the Facebook group was a focus summary of chapters 17 and 18. In chapter 17, Dr. Coughlin of Leopolis packs up his family for a week-long tour of the state. They are broadened in their travels by such wonders as a movie theater with a piano and a violin, a black fox farm, and the state's tallest water tower. Along the way, he drops in to pass the time of day with the local doctors. With Dr. Trump, he spends an evening smoking cigars and exchanging shop talk and gossip. They express suspicion of the latest fads and wrinkles in science, scorn the classy specialists in favor of the life of a simple country doctor, and inventory the faults of all their fellow practitioners. McMintern does too confounded much guesswork. Winter is a great hand-holder, but twenty years behind the times. Silzer likes to hear himself talk. And Aerosmith is said to be a brainy, well-informed, hustling young fellow who drinks too much and never goes to church. When Bert Tozer reports that Dr. Coughlin is going around calling Martin a booze hoister, Martin feels more desperately than ever that the whole country is watching him. Then, Blackleg is found in the cattle of Crimson County, and even after the Hunziker vaccine is administered, it continues to spread. Making his own laboratory apparatus, Martin tests his suspicion that the vaccine has insufficient living organisms, and he discovers that his suspicion is correct. After three efforts and two absurd failures, he prepares a vaccine of his own. The physicians denounce him as a nihilist and a notoriety seeker, and accuse him of ruining the dignity of the profession. Martin retorts that if he had his way, he'd be doing research under someone like Sondalius, who could take his results and force them down people's throats. Then, he reads that Sondalius himself will be lecturing in Minneapolis the next Friday evening, and he runs into the house shouting to Leora, I'm going. Martin boards the day coach with dreams of leaving medicine behind and enjoying an evening of freedom and dissipation. When no one seems interested in him, he becomes lonely for Leora and laments that probably the Sondalius lecture will be rotten. Arriving at the lecture hall, Martin finds a roaring and bellowing Sondalius, whose incantations fill Martin with visions of heroic battles against disease and the making of a new world. He resolves that he'd follow him through fire. Watching him after the lecture, he would have sworn Sondalius was lonely, and he invites him for a drink. Whether Martin is aware of it yet or not, the Sondalius mystique begins to shatter as he asks with insecure repetition whether the audience liked it, admits that though he wars on alcohol publicly, he does enjoy it as a solvent of human stupidity. And, when Martin begins to question him ardently about city health boards, ignores him and instead admires a passing girl's ankles. Looking for something that they might have in common, Martin asks if Sondalius knows Max Gottlieb. Sondalius declares him the greatest and the spirit of science, compared to whom he is a circus clown. Irritated by a surly man at the next table staring at them, Sondalius charges the man threateningly, and then, discovering he is a fellow countryman, brings him back to their table for a drink. 
the three drink and talk and argue until dawn, and then part, tearfully vowing to meet again. Sondalius has secured his place as Martin's new god. In his Sondalius-inspired fervency, he bursts in on the office of the Superintendent of Health for Crimson County and offers to do all his work for half the pay. He then proceeds to alienate his fellow townsmen by poking into their yards and denouncing them for their unhygienic practices. The community of Delft had long suffered a typhoid epidemic, which came and went, and on which they blamed a tribe of squatters up the creek. When Martin insists that that couldn't be the source, he is amply denounced, and when he traces it to an itinerant seamstress and has her quarantined, he is reviled for persecuting the poor woman. Leora saves them both when she suggests he take up a collection and send her to a sanitarium. She is forgotten, and he is praised as smart and right on the job. Martin then bounds after a new epidemic of suspected smallpox. Against the protest of the anti-vaccinationists, Martin goes from house to house beseeching them to get immunized. When all but the first case proved to be chickenpox, Martin becomes the butt of the land. Thereafter, people greet him with comments like, Got a pimple on my chin, Doc. What is it? Smallpox? When a real epidemic of diphtheria hits the neighborhood, the town laughs at his shaky warnings, and the fact that a number of children die doesn't stop them. Martin says he's licked and they're too damned humorous to listen to him. And Leora says they'll go somewhere else, where people will appreciate him. With the help of Sondalius, he finds an appointment in a public health office in Nautilus, under the director, Almus Pickerbaugh. He thrills at the prospect of influencing the health of 69,000 residents. Bert Tozer calls him a traitor for leaving the family. Ada Quist says she guesses they'll have to take them in when they come sneaking back. And Mr. Tozer asks if they haven't treated them nice, and if there isn't some way they could fix it to stay. Pete Yeska says he'd just been thinking about offering Martin a partnership. Dr. Hesslink says he thought they'd just gotten medical practice where it ought to be. And Henry Novak complains that he's leaving when they have a new baby coming and need him. After Martin and Leora board the train, this strange chorus of indignation and regret and affection and wistfulness has the effect of making Martin consider momentarily that he ought to get off the train and go back to them. But only momentarily, and he again begins to dream of making Nautilus a model city and earning the praise of Sondalius, and maybe even Gottlieb. The next of my posts was called False Idols. Martin has his head too far in the clouds to see it, but we see pretty quickly that his new god Sondalius is a disappointment. This is a poignant portrait of the experience of the disappointment that can come from seeing your hero too close up. I'm not so cynical as to think this is always what happens, though Sinclair Lewis sure seems to be. But it certainly is an experience with which we can all, I think, in some way, relate. Martin had been seeking a new god to worship, and he found one in Sondalius. Having abandoned pure research for the responsibility of supporting a wife, having lived the tedious, gossipy, irksome realities of small-town practice, 
Martin sets his sights on life as a public health hero, with Sondalius as his role model. Though Martin's eyes remain dreamily clouded in the presence of his hero, we are able to see through him. We watch him not inspire his audience with truths, but hypnotize them with incantations. When the crowd departs, Sondalius does not appear serene and self-satisfied, but lonely. With Martin's fawning attention, he comes alive again, looming over him with solar radiance. The same warrior who had spoken rapturously of his medical conquests looks to Martin for reassurance that the speech was all right, that his jokes went over, that people liked it. When Martin tries to engage him in meaningful conversation, Sandalius instead admires the ankles of a passing girl and wonders whether they will get good beer at the beer garden. Sandalius is a cautionary tale about false idols. But the question that must be in your mind, as it is in mine, is whether the same could be true of the man compared to whom Sandalius is a self-declared clown, Max Gottlieb. And will Martin ever figure out how to assume the mantle of the hero himself? The last of my posts was called The Country Doctors. Everything about the conversation between the two country doctors, Dr. Coughlin and Dr. Trump, cracked me up. Their incessantly addressing each other as doctor seemed like a mutually acknowledged desire for the satisfaction of being addressed by the title each thinks so distinguishes him. Quote, Say, tell me, doctor, what do you do with your jaundice cases? Well, I'll tell you, doctor. If it's a persistent case, I usually give ammonium chloride. Unquote. There are countless scenes in Aerosmith that I feel like I need to keep in my pocket to flourish in the midst of an argument or in response to a news story. No variety of irrationality or pseudoscience is left unmocked in this novel. Surely you've seen discoveries in science scorned as fads and dismissed in favor of experience and results. Next time you do, just brandish the page with Coughlin, or it might have been Trump, saying, Hell, I said, scientific. I don't know if it's the latest fad and wrinkle in science or not, but I get results, and that's what I'm looking for is results. It sometimes seems there is nothing anyone can say that Lewis didn't make fun of decades ago. Or how about the defensiveness with which some people justify living in a small town, lest those fancy city folk think that they are in any way superior? Quote, Personally, I'd rather stay right here in the country and be able to do a little hunting and take it easy. Even if I got to making eight, ten thousand a year, twouldn't hardly mean more than three thousand does here. And a fellow has to consider his duty to his patients. Unquote. And finally, the way in which they flatter themselves by systematically putting down every other local doctor on whatever grounds they can conceive. He does too much guesswork. He's just a handholder. He shoots off at the mouth too much. He's a drinking man and a freethinker who never goes to church. Are we to imagine for a second that they wouldn't say similar things about each other if they didn't happen to be sitting down together for a cigar? Recently, about once a day, I say to one of my daughters, 
That reminds me of a scene from Aerosmith. Sinclair Lewis seized the heart of falsehood and irrationality of all kinds, and his way of combating them is to make them the object of ridicule. And sometimes it's darn funny.